In the summer of 2007, Craig Courtney had the privilege of being part of a mission team serving in Ukraine. Because of its geographical position and rich natural resources, the country has a history of foreign invasion, occupation, and oppression. It is estimated that more than 25 million Ukrainians were killed during the 20th century due to starvation, war, and the deadliest nuclear accident in history. Ukrainian Christians in particular suffered discrimination, arrest, torture, and even death for the sake of their beliefs. This anthem was born out of the knowledge of these circumstances. It is a musical portrayal of a quiet voice of faith, praise, and hope in the midst of suffering and tragedy.
Thank you very much, choir and orchestra, for your sharing in this. Some of the orchestra spread out through the, the congregation a little bit after they got through playing. Boy, what a what a way to to worship the Lord this morning. You know, as they sang that Ukrainian Alleluia, that's the only song out of Ukraine they could sing without having to have a translator, because that word is international. It's the only word that's the same in every language, and uh, so that's good, that's good. It reminded me that in the mid-90s, uh, I became friends with a medical doctor who, had, who was from Ukraine, and she had gone into Chernobyl after the, the uh, nuclear accident there, and because that had uh, contracted serious cancer and some Doctors in Orlando brought her there for, and that's how I met her for treatment. She went into remission, went back to Ukraine, practiced medicine a little longer than the cancer recurred, and she came came back to the states. But there she died, and I did her funeral in Orlando, Florida. Her husband and two daughters were there, and stayed for several weeks. And then I had the most unique experience I've ever had at any point in my life. The father was getting ready to go back to Ukraine. And he recognized he could not raise two daughters in Ukraine the way he was. And so sitting in my study, uh, Sergei looked at me and said, Pastor, I give you my girls. And I went, uh, what? <laughs> I mean, I loved them both. Lena and, and Julia were precious, precious young ladies. But he said, no, you must take them and and." Well, long story short, she, uh, that one of the girls was the same age as my 13-year-old son at that time, and we knew that wasn't going to work out. Uh, but we did take care of him for a while, and then my, my uh, worship pastor and his wife, who had no children, could not have children, adopted the two girls and raised them. And they're both godly young ladies now living in, in Florida and uh, growing in the Lord. Both of them married, both of them with the families of their own, but... When I saw that in, the, in print and then I heard it saying and heard that, that, uh, that introduction to the song, it just brought back a lot of memories to me. Wow, what a mighty God we serve. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. Uh, if you're our guest today, and, and quite a few of you are, we have been in a series of messages since before Easter entitled Union with Christ. It was Union with Christ and the Resurrection before Easter, and after Easter I decided to stay in it, and we've been going since then just on Union with Christ and various concepts of that. And in the last several weeks we've been looking specifically at the concept of Union in Christ from Romans chapter 8. I'm not going to try to catch you up, okay? If you're our guest, I'm sorry. Uh, if you want to catch up, the sermons are online, you can do that. But I, I do want to begin by saying that first verse of Romans 8 kind of sets the tone for all uh, of this understanding of, 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 of union with Christ. When the Apostle Paul simply says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. We stand free. We stand forgiven. We stand liberated in our everyday life because we are in Christ, if indeed we are 
in Christ. That's the, that's the operative word, the idea of this union with Christ, this oneness with Christ, this coming into relationship with Christ is the theme of Romans 8 that rings true and rings important for us to understand. We talked about how being in union with Christ changes our minds. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we look at things. We talked about uh, how union with Christ brings about a, a justification with God and a, a declaration of, in, uh, of forgiveness from God that's so important. Last week we began talking about in part one of this sermon that union with Christ brings assurance. And we tried to look at a little bit of what that means that, that we can have assurance of our standing if we are in Christ. If we are in union with Christ, we don't have to fear about being rejected. Now, it, it does change our mind, and it does change our lifestyle. And it does change how we live and what we desire and what we pursue and what we set our mind upon. But if we are in Christ and the Spirit of God is at work within us, it brings assurance. And that's what, that's what Paul is talking about in these three verses, 14 through 16. Hear them as I read them. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, or daughters of God, children of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. We talked about the intimacy of that phrase last week. The Spirit himself, that is the Holy Spirit, capital S there, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself, testifies with our spirit, lowercase, our internal spirit, our internal life. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that assurance is a significant and assurance is an important thing that we can understand and we can attain even in this life. It doesn't mean that we live sinless. It doesn't mean that we, we don't have our struggles and have our falls and, and all sorts of things in this life. Because we do. We all do. We all still continue to sin because of sin that dwells in us. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 7, which we didn't study yet. But, but he does make it clear that we will all still struggle. But the reason we struggle is because the Spirit indwells us. The reason we struggle is because God dwells in us by His Holy Spirit, and when we sin, and when we fall, and when we fail to, to when we fall short of what His purpose is in our life, the Holy Spirit is there within, convicting us and calling us and changing us back into the right course and back into the likeness of Christ. That's a significant thing to understand, folks. The believer struggles with sin because of the Holy Spirit. The unbeliever has no struggle with sin. The unbeliever has no problem with sin. The unbeliever is quite happy to be in their sin and, and just living out the life as they want to live it in charge of their own life. And that's a great difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Whether they are in church every Sunday or not, it's what is the Holy Spirit doing in your life that will bring about assurance of salvation to you. If you belong to him if there's a union with him now he says three things here that are so important he says first of all God's children are led by God's Spirit we talked about that uh, fairly extensively last Sunday but I want to go back to that 
for just a minute. Because we need to remember, when, when Paul says that all God's children are led by God's Spirit, he's not just talking about led to who to marry or what kind of job to have or where to live or, or where to go to college or anything like that. When he talks about being led by the Spirit, he's talking about that God's Spirit is actively at work in our life. In the passage just before this, he talked about mortification of sin, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. The old word that the Puritans loved so much was mortification. King James Version uses, we are mortifying the deeds of the flesh. We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That is the primary work of being led by the Spirit for every believer. If you are in Christ, you cannot put to death the deeds of the flesh by yourself. You, you can't just decide, I'm going to turn over a different leaf. I'm going to become a better person. I'm going to try hard, and in my strength, I'm going to break the bonds of sin. The bonds of sin are too great. That's why the unbeliever is, is bound up and in slavery to sin, no matter how good a person they appear to be to you and me. They are bound in their sin. They're bound in their slavery to sin. It's only the Spirit of God that can break those bonds and set us free. It's the only way it can happen. And so Paul says, those who are children of God, they're being led by the Spirit of God. And he said back before that, they are putting to death the deeds of the body. In other words, being led by the Spirit and mortifying of sins by the Spirit are two complementary ways of saying the same thing, just in two different directions. So, so Paul is wanting us to understand that if you are in Christ, the deeds of the body are being put to death because you are led by the Spirit. I said last week, and, and I mean it with all my heart, the most important work of the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian is not some kind of a, giving you some kind of ecstatic experience. It's not giving you some kind of spiritual gift that you can wow the people with. The most, the most important work of the Spirit in your life, being led by the Spirit, is bringing conviction of sin to your life. Pointing out that sin in your life. Now, sometimes he may use a sermon, sometimes he may use a friend to, to do that, but it only becomes a reality, it only becomes effectual in your life when it's the Spirit doing the work within your life. That's important to remember. The, the second basis for our assurance that Paul talks about here it, it, of salvation is that God's children have been literally, psychologically liberated from fear and from dread. And, and in reality, they begin to taste true delight in their life and in their worship. That's what he says in verse 14. I mean, verse 15, excuse me, said, You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. Fear is another word for dread. You, you've not received a spirit of slavery whereby you will fear everything around you and fear the culture and fear the Supreme Court of the United States or anything else. You, you've, been given a, you've been given a different spirit in your life. You've received a spirit of adoption whereby you cry out a father. There's a delight in that. There's a joy in that. There's a joy in knowing that God who created everything that there is, the one who spoke things into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, that God is a God that we can now cry out to in the most endearing, 
the most personal, the most intimate way. Abba, Father. One of the greatest joys of mine when I had small children many, many years ago was to get home in the evening and have one of them run to me and jump in my arms and say, Daddy, you're home. Hug me. You've experienced that, many of you. And that's a joy that is just indescribable. Well, Paul is saying here that that's the kind of intimacy, that's the kind of, that's the kind of delight that we can have in him. You didn't receive slavery, but you received adoption as sons and daughters as children of God. Nobody's, nobody's naturally born into the family of God. Nobody can say, well, I've been a Christian since I was born. No, it doesn't happen that way. You're adopted by a work of God that brings you into his family, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because you have a right to be there, but because he, by his grace, has adopted you into his family, brought you into his family, made you a part of his family by his love and by his grace. You know, there's a lot of Christians this week who are fearing. There are a lot of people who are saying, oh, man, the, the, the nation that we've grown up in and loved has changed radically. And you know what? It has. And I'll tell you what, over the next five to ten years, maybe over the next five to ten months, you're going to see a radical sifting of the church. You really are. You're going to see churches that as a whole will say, no, 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 no. We'll just give up on what the scripture says and we'll, we'll become much more culturally relevant and we'll just accept what everybody says we ought to accept. And they're going to cease to be effective for the gospel. You're going to see Christians, professing Christians, men and women in churches who are going to say, oh man, this is getting too tough. They're going to take away my, my, my donations. Uh, that's going to make it. I can't get a tax deduction for giving to the church. Oh, that's that's going to hurt my pocketbook. I just got to back away from that, especially any church that's really going to preach the gospel and preach the truth of Almighty God. But we're not to fear that. Nothing to fear. I mean, there's nothing to fear, because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Greater is he who has called you and set you apart for his glory and for his ministry than anything that can come against you. No matter what color robes they wear, no matter where they sit, no matter what they say. Friend, our, our, our catchphrase we've had around here for a long time is going to have to continue to be, Our God reigns in glory and in power. We've been set free. We've been liberated from dread. And, and now we've come to taste the delight of what it means to know Him. It's part of our assurance. Do you delight in Him? The third ground of confidence is this. God's children receive the witness of the Holy Spirit within their own life. The witness is, is there by conviction. And the witness is there to just say, you're mine. You belong to me. You're my child. You're part of my family. I love you. I care for you. I watch over you. I protect you. And nothing, nothing in this world will be able to take you away. I love how Jesus said it. 
in John's gospel. We saw that a couple of years ago when we were going through John's gospel when Jesus said, hey, hey, you're in me, I'm in the Father, and, and you're in the Father's hands, and, and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. His power, his glory, his authority reigns over your life and my life if we are in union with Christ. I, I love something I read years ago in, in, in one of the works of Jonathan Edwards. He shared about his wife, Sarah, and, and she had written down a bit of a, her own heart and how God was working in her own heart. She had, she had struggled really with a sense of wrath, that, that God's wrath was upon her, that God's, God's anger was upon her, that God was just... She wasn't a believer. That's what she struggled with. And, and that she even belonged to God. But God took all that away. And this is how she recorded it. She said, I felt a strong desire to be alone with God. This is the Spirit working in her life. I felt, I felt a strong desire to be alone with God, to go to Him without having anyone to interrupt the silent and soft communion which I earnestly desired between God and my own soul and accordingly withdrew to my chamber. Now understand, that's the spirit at work when you have that kind of desire. You don't desire that naturally. Naturally, you desire to be shielded from God, to avoid God. But here the spirit is at work in her life, and she has this desire to draw near to him. And, and incidentally, she, was reading, she went to her chamber and she started reading Romans chapter 8. Great chapter. Here's what she said. She said, the words in Romans 8 appeared to me with undoubted certainty as the words of God. As words which God did pronounce concerning me. I had no more doubt of it than I had of my own being. It's, I, I seemed, as it were, to hear the great God proclaiming thus to the world concerning me. Who shall lay any Thing to your charge. Who shall lay a charge to God's elect? That's down in the later part of this chapter. It was strongly impressed upon me how impossible it was for anything in heaven or earth, in this world or the future, ever to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I cannot find language to express how certain this appeared. The everlasting mountains and hills were but shadows to it. My safety and happiness and eternal enjoyment of God's unchanging love seemed as durable and unchangeable as God himself. Melted and overcome by the sweetness of this assurance, I fell into a great flow of tears and could not help but weeping aloud. From uncertainty, from doubt, from fear to delight, to knowing that he was, he, her, her relationship with him was as safe and unchangeable as God himself is unchangeable, immutable. Wow. You know, Christians in our day, though, seem to suffer from a malady. When I was growing up, and I'm old, you, kids, you guys have probably never heard this word. But when I was growing up, I remember my preacher used to always talk about being backslidden. Ever heard of that? Yeah, never heard of him. No, it's all right. You have. All right. We've got one. 
witness in the choir. Being backslidden. And what he was always talking about was a believer who had become so caught up in the world and so caught up in his or her own life that they, 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 were, they were eclipsing God. He didn't use this term. This is my term. You heard me talk about this before. He was eclipsing God in their life. They were eclipsing God in their life. They knew him, and he was still powerful, and he was still there, but there was this eclipse that was taking place. When an eclipse of the sun takes place, the moon comes between the earth and the sun, blocks out the glory of the sun. Looks like the sun's not there. Looks like its power's gone. Looks like its light's gone. But it's still there just as glorious and just as brilliant as it ever was. But in a black sitting condition, we let people, we let things, we let our life kind of block out his glory and his power. And it happens. It happens at some time or another probably to every believer. Some more than others. But I remember reading Richard Roberts, Richard Owen Roberts, who was a, a great writer on the revivals and what revival is. Not talking about a, a, a week-long meeting or anything like that, but genuine, real revival. And, and in that, he said, you know, there are certain evidences of a, black, of a backslidden condition. And, and he lists about 30 evidences. I want to share a couple of you, that, a, a few of them that he says, really 11 or 12 of them. But I'll do it quickly. Robert says there's evidence of a backslidden condition, number one, when prayer ceases to be a vital part of your life, when you're too busy to pray, when you're too busy to think about this union, think about this unity, think about this family relationship, and you think, hey, I can handle it, I can do it all myself, I don't need him, things are going great. And evidence of being backslidden when prayer ceases to be a vital part of your life. Secondly, he says... When a quest for biblical truth ceases and one grows content with where they are spiritually. When a quest for biblical truth ceases and you just kind of say, I'm happy where I am. I don't want to be any more holy. I don't want to be any more like Christ. I don't want to grow any. I'm just, I'm content where I am. He says that's a sign of backslidden. Thirdly, when worship with a body loses delight. I, don't, I couldn't see your faces this morning, but I know I've seen them many times when we're singing these great hymns of the faith, these great songs about the glory of God. And boy, didn't Scott pick out some great ones. You know, praise the Lord Almighty, immortal, invisible, God only, wise. I mean, wonderful, merciful, sa- merciful Savior, and I will glory in my Redeemer. I mean, those, those just exude delight, don't they? Thank you. They just exude delight. Faces ought to light up if you think about them. Of course, he deals with another point on that later. But he says, uh, fourthly, when, when pointed spiritual discussions are an embarrassment. When somebody's talking about spiritual matters around you or to you, and you're just embarrassed about it. Embarrassed about the gospel. Ashamed of the gospel. Fifth, he says, you know you're in a backslidden condition when sports, recreation, and entertainment are a large and necessary part of your life. You just got to be entertained all the time. Uh, you know, Neil Postman wrote a book several years ago, quite a few years ago, entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he talked about how the greatest draw upon the American culture is just entertainment and amusement. Just, just entertain me. 
and many churches have gone that way. But when sports, recreation, and entertainment are large and necessary and become more important than worship, you know you're in a backslidden condition. When sins of the body and of the mind can be indulged without an uproar in your conscience, you see, when the Spirit is dwelling within you and the Spirit is at work in you and had not been totally eclipsed in your life, when sins of the body or sins of the mind become a reality in your life, the Holy Spirit screams at you. And the conscience is in an uproar. Seven, when aspirations for Christ-like holiness cease to be dominant in your life and thinking. Eight, when, when, when you can mouth religious songs and words without a heartfelt expression. When you hear the Lord's name taken in vain, biblical truth mocked, or spiritual concerns taken flippantly, and you're not moved to indignation and action, you know you're in a backslidden condition. When the slightest excuse seems sufficient to keep you from worship, when the spiritual condition of the world around you declines and you don't even perceive it. And this is the last one. It's maybe my favorite because it's one I have to deal with all the time. When you overlook or pardon your own sin and laziness by saying, hey, the Lord understands and forgives. That's a truth, you know. He does understand. He does forgive. But let me tell you something. When you speak a great spiritual truth like that but totally out of context to, to, to excuse your own sin it's a sign of backsliddenness the real question is this looking at these verses that Paul eloquently talks about being led by the spirit being a, adopted as sons of God being, being brought into the family where we cry out of a father and and where the Spirit testifies within us that we're children of God and convicts us of sin. The real question is, when, are you gonna, when, when will you open your heart and receive these great gifts of God in their fullness, in their completeness? When do you prepare yourself for that walk in union as a family member? I think there are three things you've got to do a little action plan here it's something to think about as you go besides just the theological truth of it number one humble yourself humble yourself in the presence of the Lord you know a lot of times we talk about how we even pray sometimes Lord humble me make me humble let me make it clear, I don't want God humbling me. That is not a fun place to be. Because the command of Scripture is, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Humble yourselves before Him. Acknowledge that He is the source of your life and the source of everything you have. And humble yourself before Him. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not talking about poor in material things there. He's talking about being poor in spirit, humble for him, saying, Lord, I don't have anything that is not from you. And I submit myself to you completely. Humble yourself. Secondly, 
clear away the clutter from your soul. Clear away the clutter from your soul. That's mortification. Clear it away by his work in your life. Ask him, Lord, take away the idols. Take away the things that are eclipsing you in my life. Lord, take away that which is stealing your joy and your delight from my life. Lord, I want to delight in you. Take that stuff away. Get the clutter out. We've all got it. We've all got it. And it might be good things. Many times it's sinful things. But it might be good things. Things that in their own right are nothing wrong with them, but when they clutter up your soul and clutter up your walk with Christ and eclipse His glory and power in your life, they become sin, even good things. Put to death those things in light of worshiping Him. And finally, seek Him. Scripture says, seek Him while He can be found. Now I realize... Paul said in Romans chapter 3, no man seeks after God. No, but when, when there's a desire there to seek Him, you know the Spirit's at work, so seek Him. Pursue Him. Desire. If you're a Christian, you can seek Him. Lost man can't in their own strength. They want, they want to do away with Him. They want to act as though He's not there. They want to do things their way, not His way. But if you're a believer, the Spirit of God is within you, and you can seek His face and seek his presence, and seek his power, and seek his knowledge in your own life. Do it. Do it. By his grace and for his glory. Don't be satisfied. Don't be complacent. Don't let those things keep eclipsing you. See them pushed away and seek his glory, his presence, his work in your life. Listen, Romans 8 is giving us, is giving us the greatest privileges that we can ever know, ever. It's saying you can be set free from sin under no condemnation, may made alive to Christ in union with Him. He doesn't do that. For your good and for His glory. The days we live in, the times we're living in, the things we're seeing happen that are moving totally away from biblical truth in every respect, does not surprise me. Doesn't catch me off guard. I didn't think they'd get here quite this quick. I'm not surprised by them. What surprises me and what saddens me is when believers don't stand on the truth of God. Don't seek his face. Don't say God has spoken. I love the way Sarah Edwards said it. She said, I, 
I was strongly impressed that it was that these were words to me, she said. She said, I, it appeared undoubtedly as the words of God and as words which God did pronounce concerning me. If you're a Christian, these words are not only the words of God, they are that. They're not only that, but they're words that God is pronouncing to you. You are a child of God adopted into his family. You're led by the Spirit. The Spirit is testifying with your spirit that you belong to him. Would you pray with me? Wonderful, merciful Savior. What wonderful words. What glorious truth. That you are our Savior to the uttermost, to the completeness. You didn't, you didn't call us just to add something to our life. You called us to take over, to be our Lord, to mortify, to kill the sins of the body, the deeds of the body, to shape us into Christ like. Father, I pray for every person in this room this morning, believer and unbeliever alike, that your Holy Spirit will move in their life, in some to bring salvation, in some to open their eyes to see their need for a Savior and open their hearts to believe in Jesus, the only Savior, the only name under heaven whereby any man can be saved or any woman can be saved. Lord, do your work to bring people to faith in Christ this morning. Father, for believers, I ask you to strip away the stuff that is eclipsing you in their life. Lord, I ask you to, I ask you to remove the clutter Rescue them, Lord. You've already rescued them from their sin, but rescue them, Lord, from their complacency and from backsliddenness. Father, do your work as only you can. Father, we praise you. you continue to pray and our instrumentalists come and get ready we're going to sing the power of the cross as a hymn of commitment a hymn of invitation a hymn of reflection it is the power of the cross that saves it's the power of the cross that secures it's the power of the cross that cleanses stand together let's sing together as God leads you be obedient and come let's sing
and sanctify, glorify. The power of the cross is to bring us in the presence of Almighty God by His grace and for His glory. Mm. Well, there'll be some pastors in the connect room. If you want to talk to them or me, we'll be around. I'll be in the foyer. Remind you, 3 o'clock is our evening worship service. So I hope you'll be here at, uh, at, at 3 o'clock for our, this concert of worship with this choir and orchestra. And then Wednesday night, I remind you, we're just going to have a special time of prayer and discussion. So if you'd like to join me, come and be here. If I'm the only one here, I'll pray. And because uh, I know that's kind of an off night with our celebration on Friday night. But I hope you'll come because honestly, I think what we talk about Wednesday night has a lot to say about how we celebrate on July 4th at this time, at this time in our history. So I hope you'll be here. The choir is going to sing our benediction. So you hear them and then be dismissed after they've sung.